Well, hey, good morning. Once again, it is good to see you this morning. If this is one of your first times with us and, and maybe you are just exploring what walking with the Lord looks like, uh, perhaps you've been with us for quite some time and, and, and been walking with the Lord for even longer. We are just delighted that you've decided to spend some time out of your week, out of this morning with us here. And so we are going to be picking right back up where we left off in our series of Jacob. Last week we paused to celebrate our mothers. So one more time, happy Mother's Day to you. And as we uh, do this, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, now's a good time to get those out. Um, if you have a hard copy or a digital copy on your phone, if you need one, take one from the pew back in front of you. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. It's going to be important for you to read along because typically I put the text up here, but we're going through a a big chunk this morning, and I feel like that might be a little bit tedious and, and hard to look at. So Genesis chapter 29. And as we do this this morning, I, I, I want to, to look at a particular portion of Jacob's life. And I want to do so without skipping ahead to what God is going to do in his journey and just look at who he is and, and kind of his body of work at this point. And to also just, just look at his life through the lens of what I think the author of Genesis is, is trying to show us. And then just see, is there something from this that I can apply to my life? Is there something that I can do with this? So again, we're going to be in Genesis 29, and it begins like this. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? So the shepherds responded, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said, is it well with him? The shepherd said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they, the shepherds, said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, as soon as Laban had heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then 
Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other. It's also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be, with his, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The leaves wither and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the work that you're doing. And God, I just pray over this time, God, I pray that as we come before you, God, that we would surrender ourselves. God, that we would be open to what your spirit has for us this morning. God, I pray that you would give us eyes that we would see, God, ears that we would hear, and hearts that we would understand exactly what it is that you have for us, God. May, may the words of my mouth come from you and from you alone. God, would you help us to take what that thing is that you have for us and plant it in our hearts, God, that it would be something that bears good fruit for your kingdom. God, not because of anything that we could do. God, not because of any name that we are making for ourselves, but God, that we would learn to carry your name well. God, teach us to be hearers and doers of your word. God, teach us to see what it is that you want us to see in this story. And God, anything that is not of me, would we not remember a moment of? But God, whatever is of you, God, would we take, would we treasure it, would we hear it clearly, God, would you just continue to make it clear? We surrender this time to you, God, and we, we give it all to you and ask and pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so obviously we are, we are looking at Jacob. And uh, if you are like me, I grew up in the church context. I grew up in a private Christian school, and we learned a lot about Jacob. But in learning about Jacob, one of the things that, that I noticed happened, or as I went back as an adult and kind of looked at some things, was Jacob was kind of presented as this, this holy figure at times, at least in the context that, that I grew up in. And I think that's maybe not always appropriate as we look at his life and as we look at what God's doing in it. And as we look at uh, how the author of Genesis paints Jacob, at least in the beginning of his story. And so I want to talk for just a minute about that and just look at Genesis. Now, some of you might be familiar with this story, so stay with me because this is something that you've probably heard a number of times. But Genesis as its own book, I think has its own motif. I think has its own narrative that speaks to the entirety of the book of Genesis, but also into scripture. You see, Genesis starts by establishing the foundation of all things. It starts with, with God creating. And whether you believe that creation story to be literal or allegorical, it does not change the truth that we begin and end with. And that's that God was and he created. Right? He is God and I am not. That is the truth that we pull out of this. And we see him create this utopian garden where there's Adam and Eve. And he gives them authority and, and, and they're told that, that they can eat from any tree of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now again, stay with me. 
the serpent figure enters the scene. And he comes over and starts to whisper in the, Eve of e- in the ear of Eve. Yeah, ear of Eve. And he says, surely you won't die, but you'll just become like God. And so Adam goes along with her and they look, they see the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they see that it is pleasing to the eye. And so they take it. Now, in the midst of that, God enters the scene and he pronounces judgment, but he also prophesies. And, and we see the, one of the first prophecy of Jesus, of this Messiah figure. And when the Messiah comes, the serpent will bite his heel and yet the Messiah will crush his head. And so as we continue through this, we see the ramifications of sin and how it reaps death and destruction and and, and grief in this dystopian society emerges for 11 chapters in Genesis and God deals with that. And then the author brings us in and zooms hyper-focused on one man and one family, and that's Abraham. And God comes in, he makes this promise to Abraham, and that promise then goes to his son Isaac. And then that promise goes to, to Jacob, and we see the story of Jacob and his family. That's what we're studying. And then we see his sons, and, and it's at the end of Genesis in chapter 50 where we really kind of get this, this narrative thread that we can apply to all of Genesis, and that's that despite evil, God planned good. Despite the evil things in this world, even when it's not just the serpent that's working it, when it's man that's working evil, even whenever they think that they have good intentions, despite evil, God planned good. And how I think this applies to Jacob is because with where we are in the story, Jacob is not the hero. It's funny, when, uh, when Pastor Dan first started talking about doing a series on Jacob, uh, he looked at me and mentioned it, and I was like, awesome, I don't really like Jacob that much. And he went, he's one of my favorite characters. And I was like, okay, well, and so then there's this rumor now in the staff that I hate Jacob, and I don't, but I don't think he's the hero of this story, at least until this point. In fact, if you remember when we first started talking about him, his namesake is he's a heel grabber. This is the story of a heel grabber. And that wasn't just a cute moniker that was given to him. He came out of the womb clutching his brother's heel. If one was reading just the book of Genesis and they started at the beginning and they came up to this point and they hear about this heel grabber, they would go, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that? Well, you heard it with the heel biter. And so the author of Genesis has identified Jacob with the type of the serpent and put him in that camp. And I think what we see throughout all of his life is God taking one who's the son of the serpent, essentially, and turning him into a child of the promise. Despite evil, how he's working good. But here we are in the story of Jacob. He's been essentially cast out of his household. His dad said, go find a wife from the original family, but I need you to get out of here. He's stolen his brother's birthright. He's stolen his brother's blessing by deceiving his father with his mom. And he's even just had this encounter with the living God, one that humbled him and he, he fell on his face and he, he worshiped him. But in the morning after he thought about it, he said, I love that promise, but I'm only gonna follow you if you do these things. And essentially what we see in Jacob's life up until this point is that he's one who just sees what's pleasing to his eye and he takes it. We see him working and and acting as one who, who is his own judge, who is his own authority. He sees what he wants and he does it. And that's what the text continues to show us. If we look, chapter 29, right? Jacob's finding a wife. 
verses 1 through 14, really throughout this whole thing. But as we look, it starts with, with a weird little window, right? It's talking about a well. Why is it talking about a well? It's talking about these shepherds. They water their sheep at a certain time. What's, what's going on here? Do I need to pay attention to this? And I think we do. See, the reader would have been familiar with the well story because Jacob's finding Rachel at the well. But prior to this, Jacob's mom had actually been found at a well. You see, his grandfather Abraham said, I, I want a wife from my family for my son. I don't want one of these, these local tribes. So he sent, his, he sent his servant, Eliezer. He made him swear an oath. And Eliezer comes to this well, and, and he stops, and he prays. And he says, God, I really want to honor this oath. I really want to honor my, my master, Abraham. And I know, God, that, that, that he has served you. So, God, would you help me in this endeavor? And what we see is this beautiful picture where Rebecca comes forward. So we're at a well. Jacob's looking for a wife, right? It's, it's cueing those similar themes. But what's interesting is that this well, it shows that these shepherds have a local custom. Look, starting in verse 7, right? Jacob said, behold, it's still high day. So it's really hot out. It's not time for all the livestock to come because it's so hot. But you guys are here. So just roll the stone away, water them now, and then go let them graze. And they go, Jacob, that's cool. We hear you. We've thought about that. We have a local custom. We have a way that we do this. We have a way that has been deemed right to do this, and that's, we wait until everyone has gathered together, and then we water them. Now, notice what happens next. As they're talking, Rachel shows up, and as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, what does he do? He goes, he opens up the well, and he waters. He goes in direct defiance of, of what they had established as, as to be right, and says, I hear you, this is what's right in my own eyes. And so we see two parallels to the Genesis narrative. We see the garden and we see the Rebecca narrative, right? We see in the garden seeing what is pleasing to the eye and taking it for myself, determining what is good and evil for myself. And then we also see this, this Rebecca narrative, right? Finding a wife at the well. But the difference in that Rebecca uh, narrative, remember, is we see Jacob acting as his own authority. We don't see him consulting with the Lord. We don't see him looking to God to direct his steps. And I think if we jump ahead of the story too soon, because we know Jacob's got the promise, we know that God has spoken to him, we can think that he is justified in what he's doing. And I don't think that's the picture the author's painting. See, Jacob's holding on to control his life. It's almost like he's, he's trying to conform the promise to his life instead of conforming or reorienting his life around the promise. It's almost like he's trying to claim all the good things that he likes about it without understanding what it means to have this kind of promise from God in your life. And I just want to ask the question, is this something that, that we do, right? Is, is this something where sometimes we can, we can take the promises in Scripture or the things that have been declared and read over our lives and really just try to shape it into the way that our life is already going? Instead of reorienting our life, instead of looking at what it looks like to be saved, the posture of one who has been saved, are there moments where we know that there's a good thing that God has promised and, and declared and proclaimed in our life? And we say, God, look at this thing that I built now, bless it. Instead of asking, God, how can I be a part of the thing that you're blessing? 
And as the story goes on, we see Jacob is about to get a reality check. We see starting in, in verse 15 to 30, we see the deceiver deceived. And life comes at him quick. Remember, he makes this deal with his uncle Laban to, to serve for seven years. To serve seven years for Rachel. He's seen Rachel from the get-go and he said, God, that's it. That's my girl. That's how we're going to do this whole promise right there. And as he enters into that time, Laban pulls a fast one on him, beginning in verse 23. In the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I was always taught that Laban and Leah deceived Jacob. I think people can make that argument. But honestly, I, I really think if we look at the text that Leah is caught in the crossfire here. I think Leah is a victim of what her dad is doing. Jacob was certainly deceived. But I also think that there's a compelling argument to be made that Jacob didn't know that he was with Leah, but he knew he wasn't with Rachel. And that's a little bit of a rabbit trail because at the end of the day, where we end up is, is Jacob wakes up in the morning and there's Leah. This isn't what he planned. This isn't what he expected. This isn't who he wanted. Later in the text, it actually says that he hated her. This isn't what he thought his life was going to look at. And, and at the end of the day, again, I don't think he's the hero, but in terms of what he's feeling, right, we can see Jacob is disappointed. Life isn't going according to the plan that he had. He doesn't have control over this. He can't just send Leah back and say, no, 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 I, I did this for Rachel. He is stuck with Leah. And again, I'm not condoning his actions, but he's disappointed. And, and, and this is a moment where I think we can pause and look at ourselves and ask, how is it that we handle disappointment? How do we handle disappointment on the days when it shows up? In our culture, in, in the Western society, disappointment, specifically suffering, anything that, that causes us pain, we don't like. Tim Keller talks a lot about this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and, and really just articulates that there's, there's in our society, this, this, this case where we try to avoid it at all costs because we don't see any sort of purpose for it. And so when we do that, we, we start to react different ways. And I think that there's a couple different responses that we can have, right? There's moments where we can essentially take control back from God, where we hold on so tightly to our lives, where even if we've let God in for just a minute, we feel like he maybe made a mistake. We feel like he maybe overlooked something. And that's understandable, right? What is it, seven billion souls, all of creation, you got a whole solar system. I can't imagine looking after that. So like, God, I get it. I'll take control over this. You can't have this anymore. And we take control and we hold on to it. I think another thing that we can do is sometimes we, we just avoid the situation with a blind optimism. And that can work, right? Avoidance is, is the most popular coping mechanism because it works. But in the long sustained seasons, I can only go to scripture and declare certain promises over my life without looking at the context of it for so long before I start becoming disenfranchised and saying, God, where are you? I sit here and I know the plans that you have for me, but it's been a long time, God. I don't, I feel like you're not coming through. I can sit there and say, I can do all things through a verse taken wildly out of context. God, where are you? In fact, one of the scriptures that I think that we do this the most with 
is Romans 8.28. And I love this verse. It's a beautiful verse. It's a true verse, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, all things work together to their good. And so we'll take that and we almost apply a perspective of the American dream onto that. And we start to think materially in the midst of hard seasons, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of different sufferings. And we have to ask the question, what is that ultimate goal? What is that ultimate end? And we can have all sorts of philosophical discussions about it. We can take you to the Greek. We can take you to whatever and talk about it. But Paul actually answers this in Romans 8, 29. He says, this is the end that you're being worked towards, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So before the foundations of the world, God determined that those who would put their faith in Christ, they would be conformed, they'd be shaped into the image of Jesus. That is that ultimate goal. That is that ongoing work of sanctification. And that's awesome in the high seasons. But can I tell you that sometimes, friends, this is something that happens through seasons of disappointment and seasons of suffering. Of being shaped and molded into the image of God when we sit there and say, I know he's working all things together for good. It happens in the midst of disappointment and suffering. Which brings us to another response that we can have. This is going to blow your minds. You ready? You can trust the Lord. You can put your full faith and assurance that God is who he says that he is. And you can trust the Lord. And this isn't let go and let God. This is letting go of control over my life. And holding on with everything that I have to the Lord. And to what he says. In the midst of this season... Recognizing and understanding that, that our good isn't always visible to us, but God can always see it. This is a God who has good gifts for his kids, and he is for our good always, even when he allows seasons of suffering to happen in our lives. Can I just tell you for a minute, it's been four years of my life that has been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, suffering after suffering after suffering, pain after pain after pain. Four years. Waking up every morning going, God, I'm tired. God, I don't know how much more of this I can take. God, I know that you, you promised the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't have any love or joy or peace in my life. Where are you? For four years of my life. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had around my kitchen table where I feel like I'm about to lose my faith. How many conversations my wife and I have had where we're laughing and just like, I know we don't really believe it anymore, but we, we have to know that God is doing something in the midst of this. But can I tell you that in the recent months, those conversations have turned and they've changed in this long, long haul of a season that it has been. That conversation is, I don't ever want to walk through any of those things ever again, ever in my life. Those are dark days. But this person that I have become, that I am becoming as a result of those things, as a result of God carrying me through, 
I would not trade for the world. I can tell you that walking through these seasons in our life, this isn't something that's unique to Genesis, right? Remember that narrative that despite evil, God planned good? Walking through these seasons of my life, that it's been in these seasons, the lowest moments where I've tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. It's been in these seasons where I wake up and I'm disappointed and I don't know what God is doing or what hell is doing. But God has still worked and planned good despite the evil that is happening. We need to remember that Jesus says that in this world we will have trouble. And so how do we respond to disappointment? How does Jacob respond? Right? If we look at the end of the story, we see he takes control of his life and he takes Rachel anyway. He says, No, God, you got this one wrong. That's all right. I forgive you. I like that promise. You're never going to leave me or forsake me. I'll just fix this for a moment. And we don't have time to get into the rest of this story. Pastor Dan's going to hit it next week and, and talk about the family dynamic. But just to give you a sneak peek, he's going to reap dysfunction and grief, and death, and sorrow, and heartache, because he determined what was good, and he determined what was right, and so he took it for himself. And so I think as we look at the story, as, as we look at the life of Jacob, we have a choice in front of us. For right now, and God's going to change the story, but right now, we can either choose to live like Jacob, we can live like a heel grabber. We can live determining for ourselves what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, and say, God, you don't know anything about my life. I just want you to be an accessory. I'm really the th sitting on the throne of my heart. Or we can live like disciples of Jesus Christ, knowing that in the midst of all things, God is working it's together for our good, shaping us into that image of Christ and know that Jesus suffered more than anyone. Tim Keller in that same book actually notes this and it's, it's so good. If there was anyone who deserved a good life based just on merit alone, it would be Jesus of Nazareth and he did not get it. We can choose to live like Jacob or we can choose to live like disciples.